70 years with KBS World Radio, 70 years of global Korea. Throughout the year, we celebrate the 70th anniversary of KBS World Radio with the voices of our listeners from all over the world. KBS World Radio. Happy 70th birthday! I certainly have not been with KBS World Radio for 70 years, but I remember the first time I tuned into my very first KBS World Radio program. It was 2010, which was 13 years ago. I don't remember who the host was at the time for K-pop Connection, but the DJ read my first message ever on air, and I ended up winning a prize. Back then, we did not have social media the way we do now. Luckily, now we get to leave messages on the various programs' social media pages. I've shared so many stories and moments with former DJ Angie Park on K-Pop Connection, whom I get to call Nuna now. Of course, now I get to call DJ Brian Hyung as well. And whenever I feel down or lack energy, Park Jung-hyun Nuna's encouraging words on One Fine Day with Lena Park recharges me with positive energy. Thank you to all the staff and radio hosts for building a bridge to connect Korea with the rest of the world. KBS World Radio, sing you chukahamnida. 70 years with KBS World Radio, 70 years of global Korea. KBS World Radio brings Korea to you wherever you are. Hello, it's Wednesday the 4th of October and welcome to our multicultural week edition of Korea 24. I'm your host, Won Jang-woo. Controversy involving online support for China on a Korean website during a recent football match at the Asian Games has led to the Prime Minister to order the formation of a pan-government task force. We'll have more in news briefing shortly. For our multicultural week in depth, we'll find out what employers in Korea are looking from foreign job seekers. We also have a special interview with a Korean language professor to discuss the Korean language boom in recent years. And coming up on Korea Book Club, we'll be discovering a work befitting this week's theme. Let's begin Korea 24. Allegations have emerged that online support for China on a Korean web portal during the men's football quarterfinals at the uh, Asian Games was manipulated. Kakao, the operator of the Taum web portal, plans to seek a police investigation into the matter. Meanwhile, Prime Minister Han Dok-su has ordered the formation of a pan-government task force to devise preventative measures. For this and our other major headlines of the day, we have in the studio with us Kim Ming-young, our Deputy Editor-in-Chief of KBS World's English News Service. Ming-young, hello. Hello, Chang-ho. So Kakao announced today that it will request a police investigation into suspicions of so-called click manipulation on its portal service at Taum during the Asian Games. For our listeners who are coming to this story for the first time, can you explain a bit more about what this is about? Sure. Taum operated a Turing click service during the Asian Games, allowing users to click on teams they support. During the quarterfinal of the men's football match between South Korea and China on Sunday, 
Support for China reached 91% at one point, compared to a mere 9% for, South, for the South Korean side. This is despite the fact that the website is mainly used by South Koreans. The ratio of cheering for China fell to 55% at the end of the game, but it was still higher than support for South Korea. At the same time, clicks supporting China was around 10% on Naver, the country's largest web portal. Tom also generated suspicions, suspicious outcomes in Saturday's women's football quarterfinal match between the two Koreas, with cheering for North Korea reaching 75%, while support for South Korea came to 25%. Tom has stopped the cheering click service, although it will continue allowing users to write comments on the cheering page. Right, so there seems to have been a deliberate ploy to manipulate the cheering feature on Taom in support of China and North Korea. Uh, Kakao, which owns Taom, has explained that macro manipulation influenced the cheering page. How was this done? According to the Korea Communications Commission, external forces either utilized a virtual private network to access the portal, posing as domestic netizens, so applied the macro tactic of using automating programs to boost the number of clicks for China. An analysis of around 31.3 million clicks on time before and after Sunday's match found that 50% of them were posted from the Netherlands and another 30% from Japan. Now, this controversy has expanded into the political realm as well. Uh, There are wider concerns that this shows how websites might be vulnerable to online opinion rigging. This led to Prime Minister Han Su today to order the formation of a pan-government task force to prepare preventative measures against such manipulation online. That's right. Han ordered the urgent formation of the task force centered around the Korea Communications Commission and related ministries such as the Ministry of Justice, the Ministry of Science and Technology and the Ministry of Culture, Sports and Tourism. Han stressed that fake news is a serious social problem that shakes the foundation of democracy and asked the task force to come up with legislative steps to prevent a recurrence of scandals similar to the 2018 online opinion rigging. Okay, we'll continue to watch this story as it develops in the days to come. Uh, Moving on to other news now. North Korea has been conducting a publicity campaign that since the Supreme People's Assembly adopted a revision stipulating more advanced development of nuclear arms last week. This comes a year after the enactment of a new nuclear law allowing the preemptive use of such weapons. So what was the North's latest statement? On Wednesday, the North warned of strong military action after a new U.S. strategy on countering weapons of mass destruction described Pyongyang as a persistent threat. The U.S. Defense Department's recently released 2023 strategy for countering weapons of mass destruction said North Korea, Iran and violent extremist organizations remain persistent threats as they continue to further pursue and develop WMD capabilities. In a statement carried by the North's official Korean Central News Agency, a spokesperson for North Korea's defense ministry said such a description is another grave military and political provocation against the regime. The spokesperson said that the term persistent threat is most suitable for the United States, the world's largest possessor of WMD, and warned that the North will counter the U.S. military strategy with the most overwhelming and sustained response strategy. The latest statement is the fifth released by the North in the past four days, as Pyongyang is apparently aiming to justify its efforts to bolster its nuclear capacity. Was there a response from Seoul in the wake of Pyongyang's moves to enshrine its nuclear policy in its uh, constitution? Yes, Seoul's defence ministry warned on Wednesday that Pyongyang will face the end of its regime upon any attempt to use nuclear weapons. The ministry said that South Korea and the US are maintaining a combined readiness posture that can overwhelmingly respond to any attack from the north.
Now, back to the Asian Games in Hangzhou. We just received some news of another gold medal for Team Korea. The uh, South Korean archers Im Shiyun and Yoo Seok grabbed the gold medal in the recurve mixed team finals. Uh, the duo beat Satsuki Noda and Takaharu Furukawa of Japan 6-0 at Fuyang Inhu Sports Center, capturing South Korea's first gold in the mixed team archery event in the Asian Games. That adds to another handful of medals that uh, Team Korea has managed to grab over the past day. Can you tell us more about them? Yes, South Korean Go players won the gold medal in the men's group competition on Tuesday, while five matches took place simultaneously for the final team competition, South Korea's Nindan Shin Jin So, Shin Min Jun and Park Jung Won first won their games against China to secure the gold. The men's relay team won the bronze in the 4 by 100 meter relay on Tuesday to claim South Korea's first medal in the event in 37 years. The four-member team of Lee Jong-tae, Kim Gu-kyung, Lee Jae-sung and Ko Seung-won finished the race behind China and Japan tying the national record time of 38.74 seconds. It is the first time that South Korea won a medal in the event since coming in third in the 1986 Seoul Asian Games. And finally, one of Asia's largest film festivals opened today here in South Korea. The 28th Busan International Film Festival, also known as BIF, kicked off on Wednesday night for a 10-day run in the southern port city. Can you tell us more? Yes, as you know, it's one of the most awaited events in Korea's film calendar. Actress Park Eun-bin, who played Woo Young-woo on the popular series Extraordinary Attorney Woo, is hosting the opening ceremony, which began at 6 p.m. at the Busan Cinema Center. This year's BIF will screen 209 films from 69 countries at four theaters in the city, with Because I Hate Korea by South Korean director Chang Gonje opening the festival. Ten pictures, including films from South Korea, Japan, China, and Bangladesh, will vie for the awards in the new Currents Competition section. The festival will close next Friday with Chinese director Ning Hao's black comedy, The Movie Emperor, starring Hong Kong actor Andy Lau. That's all for our news briefing today. Ing Young, thank you for those updates. Thank you. The growth of K-culture, such as K-pop, Korean television and cinema, has led to an influx of people coming to Korea in recent years, as well as more Korean companies looking to branch out across the world. This has led to an increase in employment prospects for foreigners in Korea as well. But what are employers looking for, and how do prospective employees best prepare for a career in Korea? To discuss that, we have joining us on the line today Reporter Itei from the Korea Juang Daily, who visited a job fair for international students at COEX in Gangnam District last month. Ms. Yi, hello, and thank you for your time today. Hello, thank you. My name is Tae Lee, and I'm from the Korea Juang Daily. Before we get into some of the skills that are perhaps required from a candidate, can you tell us about the current overall environment for foreign job seekers in Korea? It seems that employment opportunities for foreigners have been increasing in recent years. Uh, is that the case, and why do you think that is? I do want to say that employment opportunities have been increasing, but I do want to say only slightly. So, like, as Korean companies branch out abroad, they need people to work in, like, these new fields like international sales, international marketing, things like that. So, in that sense, yes, demand has been increasing. But 
if you sort of look at the actual number of foreigners that were employed in Korea, the number has been sort of similar throughout the years. So in 2022, there were 840,000 foreigners employed. In 2021, there were 850,000 going back to 840,000 in 2020. So you see that the numbers have remained similar rather than showing like a huge increase. Also, there is this demand. Right. So it's not been dramatic, uh, mm-hmm. but there is a clearly, uh, you're saying that there does seem to be a clear demand for more foreign employees in companies, especially as companies are expanding. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what kind of companies, industries uh, has the most employment opportunities for foreigners currently then? I mean, looking at uh, stats, manufacturing is a big sector. Like, for example, 44% of foreigners in Korea were employed in manufacturing as of last year. But if you're talking about the sort of corporate jobs, one of the positions that traditionally hire a lot of foreigners is IT tech developers. So whether it's startups or non-tech related companies, there is a huge demand for developers. And the supply of Korean developers are not enough, and many companies are willing to sort of combat these labor shortages with the foreigners. Uh, for example, in July, the Ministry of SMEs did a small survey of around 200 companies, and actually more than the majority, uh, 54%, said that they were willing to hire foreigners to in development and software developers. So, and apart from the engineering roles, There is overseas sales, marketing for companies that want to target countries abroad. And I want to say, like, especially cosmetics, since Korean companies rely on exports as, like, K-beauty booms. They need people who have, like, knowledge and understand customers abroad, know how to operate international sales platforms like Amazon, Shopee, Lazada. And if you look at many of those job posts, many actually, like, specifically state that we are looking for foreigners or also state, like, we are looking for native-level fluency mm. in the language that we are using in our overseas, uh, overseas markets. Mm-hmm. Okay, so tell us about uh, the job fair that you went to that I mentioned at the beginning. I understand that mm-hmm. you spoke to companies and employers. Uh, what did you find uh, there? What did you find, perhaps, as some of the most important skills that companies were looking for in foreign job seekers? I mean, those specifically looking for foreigners, I think... Having insight about foreign markets and also having related experience was a big thing. Like, as I sort of mentioned earlier, like international sales and marketing, companies wanted foreigners that can come to their company and provide like a new and unique foreigner's perspective into the business. Like Mm. those who know which sales channels, which platforms work best when they like first want to enter a new country and want to succeed, like what sales tactics like really effectively target the locals there. So, and those with those uh, knowledge, but rather than saying, yeah, I know all this because I'm a foreigner, candidates with like related work experience that can back that up was really desired. Uh, and companies do know that it might be difficult to get internships as like a fresh graduate. So they did say that non-related, non-work related experience was also okay. Like any experience acquired while participating in university clubs or maybe running a social media channel account that targets foreigners. So any experience that can be linked back to anything, the policies the companies require, any businesses the company wants to branch out into, that was really highly desired. Right, so they want experience, however uh, little it is, uh, so they can tap in 
more effectively to a foreign market. Mm -hmm. uh, were there any other unique qualities that you think Korean companies were looking for in a candidate, perhaps compared to uh, other countries? What skills or qualities do Korean companies require in a candidate that stand out as different from uh, companies from other countries? I mean, as obvious as it sounds, Korean skills was something really big that they required from foreign candidates rather than just saying we are looking for people who can speak basic Korean. They were sort of more direct saying we want people who are at least bilingual in English and Korean and can comfortably use Korean in working environments. So that was one big thing. Right. So Korean fluency is quite important then. And you're saying they need to be... Uh of a high level as well. Mm -hmm. Like, for example, companies in the job post, they would state uh, business proficiency. We're looking for people who can work in business environments. And specifically looking into that, they said they want people who can write business emails, who can understand what kind of goes on during business meetings, and also kind of say what they want to say in Korean during the business meetings as well. So uh, being fluent is always best. And except for companies like Coupon, who specifically stated that they do hire on-site translators, all the other companies, they were direct in saying we need people who are fluent in Korean. <laughs> right. So some companies offer uh, translation services for their foreign employees, uh, mm -hmm. but most do not. So therefore, they need uh, a certain level of Korean fluency to be able to do their jobs, essentially. That's what you're saying. True. Right. And also, uh, like, even for companies that had overseas branches in countries abroad where Korean won't be the main language because kind of their supervisor or their boss could be Korean, they still sort of required a certain level of Korean fluency as well. So it seems to be uh, related to culture as well then, not just about being fluent in the language, but also perhaps uh, knowing uh, how Korean companies operate, or at least uh, Korean business culture operates as well. Mm -hmm. Would that be an important point for that employees are looking for as well, perhaps not just the language, but knowing that sort of uh, 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 culture as well? Yeah, for example, I also met some uh, foreigners who are currently employed in Korean companies and have been working in the industry for a few years. And they said that knowing the Korean nuances rather than just the language itself is also important. Like, even if you sit in meetings and understand what the Koreans are talking about, you need to know what the boss is kind of implying underneath their language, what the kind of traditional Korean bosses require from you. So that is also kind of an important thing that was stressed, maybe not by the HR managers, but the people who have been working and kind of learned from their experience. Hmm. Would you say that sort of uh, culture and knowing the Korean language is perhaps the most important quality for uh, a candidate who are looking for a job in Korea at the moment then? I would say if there were two candidates that had the same skill sets hmm. and if someone had even the slightest Korean a better Korean proficiency, I would say companies would prefer that candidate. For example, a lot of companies, they state like minimum topic requirements, like even level four, even level five, as even a minimum uh, requirement to apply. So I would say Korean proficiency is one of the things that companies do prioritize. Mm. And do you think there's anything else uh, apart from the language uh, requirements that was perhaps different for uh, Korean companies, uh, what they're looking for in a, in a candidate? 
maybe not so much different, but one other thing that companies were looking for is those who really know the industry, mm. like HR managers. I think it's mostly having to do with language barriers. As a foreigner, you don't really get access to like all the news articles about what businesses those companies are currently in or want to branch out into. So foreigners might be sort of behind industry knowledge, but companies said that they want people who know exactly what businesses they want to branch out into, specifically what projects they're working on. So those who have that basic knowledge that they know they are interested in the company. Right, so experience is important uh, once again. And finally, uh, would you have any tips or advice that you could give to uh, potential foreign job seekers who are listening uh, when applying for a job in Korea uh, from talking to uh, HR managers uh, during that job fair? I mean, like, as a reporter, my current beat is international students, so that's why I go to universities, job fairs. And I've met a lot of students who are currently job seeking and many of them ask me like they don't they tell me that they don't have the same amount of information like Korean students so they ask me like where can I get information about job openings where can I know about specific job descriptions like what's to work at the companies but if there is a company or industry you really want to work in I would advise them to really dig deeper into their websites like for example many companies operate a separate website where they post career-specific uh, specific information. Mm. Like for SK, they have SK Career Journal. And Postco, it has like a YouTube channel called Postco TV. And most conglomerates, they all actually have all these similar platforms. And on those websites and platforms, they upload like in-depth interviews with employees, with their HR managers, and they give details on tips on applying or even on things on how it's like to work at the positions at the company. So read, going through them, reading through them, it not only gives you an idea about what's put in your CV, your self-introduction, but also gives you an idea what candidates actually get picked. So I think getting those information, digging deep, really gives you an upper hand while doing job searching in Korea. Right, so target the companies rather than uh, perhaps the uh, the jobs, the, the job descriptions uh, that you might find on uh, job sites. Mm -hmm. uh, interesting. Well, hopefully this information will be useful to some of our listeners who may be looking for a job in Korea. But I think it also paints a quite interesting picture of how Korean companies uh, are operating as well, how important it remains to uh, speak Korean and also understand the culture uh, despite companies uh, becoming more global, there's still perhaps a lot of aspects that are still uh, local as well. Mm -hmm. Well, we'll have to leave it there. We've been talking to reporter Itei from the Korea Jiang Daily. Thank you for uh, speaking to us today on this matter. Thank you. Welcome to the Korea 24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index shed 59.38 points, or 2.41% on Wednesday, to close at 2,405.69. The tech-heavy Kosdaq also fell, dropping 33.62 points, or 4%, to close at 807.40. On the foreign exchange, the local currency weakened 14.21 against the U.S. dollar, closing at 1,363.51. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. Next up, we have a special interview lined up. 
Now, the Korean language has been witnessing an unprecedented boom in popularity in recent years, propelled by the tremendous success of Korean content, including K-pop, K-dramas and movies. A survey conducted by the Modern Language Association found that while university language course enrollments in the U.S. between 2016 to 2020 had been falling for most languages, including Japanese, Chinese and Spanish, Korean has increased by 25%. A first-hand witness to this phenomenon is Dr. Ross King, a distinguished professor specialising in Korean language and literature at the University of British Columbia in Canada. Moreover, he is the founder of the Korean Language Village at Concordia Language Villages in Minnesota, the US, providing a unique opportunity for individuals to immerse themselves in Korean language and culture. He joins us today via video for our multiculturally special interview to tell us more about this village, his passion for the Korean language and more. Dr. King, hello and thank you for your time today. Hello and thanks for having me on the program. Can you briefly introduce yourselves to our listeners uh, in your own words and the classes that you're teaching at the UBC? Sure. So, uh, as you said, my name is Ross King. I have been teaching Korean language and linguistics and literature since 1995 at the University of British Columbia. I teach uh, lately uh, mostly advanced Korean language courses. I am teaching a new course on hanja or uh, Chinese characters as they're used in Korean and modern Korean. Um, I'm also teaching a course on 15th century uh, Middle Korean back to the time when Sejong actually promulgated the script, like you just mentioned. And then as just for fun on the side, I'm teaching a class on on Hanmun or, or classical Chinese, the way Koreans learned it uh, in, before the 20th century. Right. So you're covering all bases, it seems, related to uh, Korean language and the history of the Korean language. How did you first come across Korean and the Korean language? And how did your interest uh, develop? It was sort of an accident. Um, It was in the second year of university. I had already taken a year of Japanese and also a year of Arabic in my first year. I had taken a bunch of European languages in high school, and I just wanted to try something different. And I encountered a professor uh, who was also working on Korean in addition to Japanese. And they didn't teach Korean at the time, but he found some funding for me to hire a tutor. And one thing led to another. I went to Korea the summer after that and just kept learning. So it was through linguistic. It was really, it was through... um, it was kind of an intellectual approach as opposed to if you look at all the pre- professors in North America who are a generation above me, they were either missionaries or spies or soldiers or Peace Corps. And I was none of the above. Mm. So what kept you going? You said you studied various languages, Japanese, Arabic and European languages. What was it about Korean that kept drawing you in? Um, Korean was really basically a black box. There was uh, no history whatsoever, virtually no tradition of anybody learning Korean in, in the United States or outside of Korea, really. There were no good textbooks. There were no good grammars. There, there were no programs teaching the language. And so it was sort of this, this puzzle to be cracked. And there was also very little research. And I just felt like 
it was um, sort of a challenge to be taken up. So it, it was really, again, a kind of intellectual puzzle at first um, through the language. Right, and you have therefore contributed hugely to uh, Korean language academia over the years. And we should also talk about the fact that you're the founder of the Korean Language Village at Concordia Language Villages in uh, Minnesota. It's dubbed the Lake in the Woods or Subsogye Hosu in Korean. Can you fill us in on what this is, uh, how it was founded and what its goals are? Sure. Um, so, well, first of all, I, I mean, full disclosure, I said I had studied a bunch of European languages uh, as a kid, and I studied Russian, German, French, and Spanish um, at the language villages, at Concordia language villages, mm. for about eight years in the 1970s. So I, I had experienced this thing called a language village personally as a child. And I basically, um, once I got to... Um, graduate school and after, I was so frustrated with the quality of Korean language instruction, and I was so frustrated with the uh, infrastructure for uh, Korean, teaching Korean to um, foreigners. And also, if you even to this day, there are still extremely few opportunities for learners under the age of 18 um, in North America to start learning Korean. So I thought um, it would be a good idea to try and make that particular language village model available to um, young people. And so what it is, it, it, the idea of a language village is basically, the simple way to describe it is it's language camp. Mm. So anything you, I mean, so American kids, Canadian kids, they all go to summer camp in the summer for one week, two weeks, four weeks. And so you do everything that you would do at a summer camp, but it's all in the target language. All of your staff, all the adults that you meet are speakers of the language and are there to help you learn Korean or whatever the language is. And it's a, it's a not-for-profit program. And you go for either, it depend, really depending how old you are, like little kids, if you're 7 to 10, maybe just one week, if they're going away from home for the first time. But it's overnight, right? So it, it, it's, you're there for 24-7, you're, you're away from home for one week or two weeks or up to a month. And for the um, month-long program, it's for high school kids. Mm. And basically, um, you, what you do is you get a year's worth of high school credit for going for one month. It's fully accredited to provide the equivalent of 180 hours of classroom instruction. So it's really intense. It's very effective because it's immersion. Everybody, you know, everything's done in, in Korean. And it's fun. It's a blast. You meet lots of um, you meet lots of uh, you know, fellow kind of learners of the language, in this case, Korean, everybody's there for the same reason. Everybody's there because they're really excited about Korean. So it's a full immersion experience, uh, putting you in the deep end, essentially. Uh, but at the end of it, uh, you should... That's correct. And so, I mean, a lot of times, sorry to interrupt, but a lot of times when Koreans back in Korea hear about this, they're, they immediately assume, oh, this is a kind of school. And I, 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 I get regular emails once a month from people I don't know in Korea who are teachers <laughs> saying, oh, I would love to come and be a teacher at Subsogehosu. And then I have to explain, well, you know, it's not like you just go and teach your one class for 50 minutes and then you're done for the rest of the day. It is 24-7 dealing with kids up in front of kids. It's exhausting work. It's a blast. But it's not school. Uh, and, and so, A, it's not school. And B, it's way more fun than school. And C, it's actually more effective than school. When you say it's not a school, uh, what do you mean? What's the difference? So school, you know, it, 
learning a foreign language in a in a classroom is a very um, uh, sterile and not so fun way to do it. it you know, it, you're you're cordoned off, oftentimes with something like 25, 30, 40 students in the room. At the language village, you're just living your life, and the ratio of staff to villagers is one to four. So you're, it's a very rich uh, language um, environment and, and, and staff to villager ratio. Um, and it, it just it never stops. And so by the time you leave, even after two weeks, you're dreaming. You know, you're having, you're having dreams where you're speaking the language in your dreams. If you just do <laughs> dribs and drabs you know, an hour a day, maybe three hours a week in a classroom, you're never going to get anywhere. So it, it's a very different approach to learning it the traditional way in a, in a, in a classroom. It sounds pretty incredible, but effective as well. Then you're saying students dream in Korean after two weeks, just two well, weeks. Actually, I mean, in some ways, again, I mentioned how, how frustrating it is with the infrastructure for learning Korean outside of Korea. The problem we've been having with the language village is that our kids might go, let's say they go for three summers and they do the four week program mm. three summers in a row. So in three years of the equivalent of high school Korean, and they go, oh, I love this language so much. When I go to university, I want to make sure I go to a university that teaches Korean. And, you know, there's not that many. There's only about 140. I mean, there's more than there were. But then so they choose their university on the basis of being able to take Korean. Then they get, to, they get to university on their first day and they take a placement test and they place into third year Korean. And they don't offer third year Korean at this university because they don't have enough people to teach it. And so a lot of our kids um, run out of road, even, you know, as soon as they get to university. And so this is what I mean when I say the infrastructure is still really weak. It's true that there are 100 universities, 140 universities teaching it in North America, but there are, well, there are only like 30 or 40 that teach four years. Right. So you're saying the infrastructure is weak, but I'm also guessing it's because uh, demand has shot up for Korean uh, in recent years. I understand the village uh, didn't have uh, that many students uh, in the early 2000s, but uh, you began to see an increase about seven years ago on the back of uh, the rise of the Korean wave, Hallyu Korean culture, right? It, that's absolutely right. So um, numbers have shot up. We, there's more demand than we can handle. And this is true not just for Supsogehosu, the language village, but for all Korean language programs right across the board in North America. Uh, last year, here at UBC, where I teach, we turned away, I think, almost 200 students from first-year Korean because we didn't have um, enough teachers to teach the extra sections. Wow. The University of Toronto turned away 300 students last year from first-year Korean because they just don't have the teachers. And so what's happened is K-pop is great in the sense that it has increased the demand, but it is also, uh, uh, the flip side of that is that it has kind of exposed how really weak and, and sort of feeble the infrastructure is and how really unprepared we all, all are for Korean to be so popular. Right. So there's a concern about how sustainable uh, this is, this popularity for Korean is. Uh, right now, of course, Hallyu is a key factor that's contributing to the rapid increase in demand for learning. But what happens if uh, Hallyu wave recedes? Uh, is that a real concern that you have? Um, it is. Um, it's a concern. Uh, the, the, the worry I have is that... Um, K-pop brings the students to us. It creates this, uh, this hunger for Korean, but K-pop will not keep the students in our programs. 
there has to be some kind of um, uh, future that is that the students can see. They have to be able to see a way forward so that they say, oh, you know, if I keep studying this language, I can probably get a scholarship to go to Korea for a year and study. And those kinds of opportunities are really thin on the ground. And, and there's just not a lot of investment into that kind of opportunity, especially for North American students um, wanting to go spend time like a year um, in Korea. So that's a problem. Um, and then, of course, yeah. So what happens if um, if K-pop fizzles out? And right now, the 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 Korean the only the only institutional support for Korean language education comes from the Korean government and basically from one place, which is the Korea Foundation, which has a very weak budget, um, is not is very bureaucratic. Um, let me put it this way: it, it's it's really not a good idea for for Koreans to put all of their eggs in one basket and just rely on the Korean government to take care of all this. So there's a, we need, we need other leaders to step forward, like from business or foundations or private um, individuals to try and, um, you know, I guess, create more investment for uh, learners of Korean. Right. So how do we encourage that? How do we address the situation? Should the Korean government still be uh, putting more effort into uh, supporting this as well and encouraging, as you said, uh, private investments into these areas? Uh, what can be done? Well, so absolutely, the Korean government should, of course. And the first thing they should do is double or triple or quadruple the budget of the Korea Foundation, which really doesn't have nearly enough money to, to, to deal with all of this. Um, but, for example, one thing I've discovered that, that we've discovered in the last three years as we try to raise money to build um, a really nice year-round winterized uh, on, on on the same lake with the other language villages, we've realized that even if we find a donor in South Korea who is willing to make a significant gift, like a donation uh, to Hosu, it is virtually impossible and bureaucratically almost disincentivizing for them to get that money out of Korea. So mm. that, that there aren't even really, there aren't even good legal pathways for donors inside Korea to get money out. So, I mean, so there, there's very simple legal steps that um, I think could be taken. But the other thing is people just need to know. Koreans up until now, this is, com this is completely new territory for Koreans. Not in their wildest dreams would Koreans even 20 years ago have thought, oh my God, our language is so popular, it's a problem for us now. And so I, I think a lot of it's just about um, awareness raising. So thank you for having me on the program because most Koreans never think about this. And unfortunately, the only day they ever think about it is on Hangulad, uh, <laughs> because that's the one day where they sort of stop, put down their English language textbooks and, and stop learning English, uh, you know, because they're all crazy to learn English and think about Korean. And then, you know, 364 days, uh, you know, we have to wait for the next the next time around. So I think a part of it is just about getting the word out. Um, I think part of it is also um, making sure, finding more diversified uh, sources of support for this, not just the Korea Foundation. Well, it's clear that you have a passion for uh, the Korean language and a desire to see it continue to flourish uh, even further than it has now. Uh, very briefly, just to wrap up, how do you feel when you see sure. Korean the lang Korean language flourish like it has uh, in recent years and Korean culture uh, spread around the world like this. And what message do you have for uh, Korean learners out there? Oh, well, how do I feel? I mean, I, 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 like most Koreans, I'm also still kind of flabbergasted because when I started learning in 1980, 
Um, you know, and not in my wildest dreams either would I have thought that Korean would be really popular like it is today. Um, so I would just tell learners, you know, you got to hang in there. It's not an easy language. And so far, uh, Korea as a nation and Koreans as a people have not yet made it as easy to learn Korean as Japan has made it easy for learners to learn Japanese or China for Chinese, etc. In other words, all these other countries that are kind of big players now on the world stage, they've been doing this for decades. In other words, they've, they've been helping foreigners learn their language and culture sometimes for 100 years. And Korea is in some ways a new kid on the block. And so I think Koreans have to really step up their game and start the analogy I would use is that um, Korean, so, Korea so far as a nation when it comes to promoting itself and promoting its language is kind of, um, to use a boxing analogy, Korea is a heavyweight country, but it, it's basically still punching lightweight. Mm. Well, we certainly hope that the current popularity of Korean uh, does continue, Korean culture does continue, and that more opportunities uh, do emerge as well, especially so that Korea can also repay the passion and effort uh, from figures like yourself who have paved the way as well for uh, Korean education overseas. Uh, well, we'll have to leave it there. We'll be speaking to Dr. Ross King from the University of British Columbia. Thank you once again for your time today. No, thank you. This is pianist Sonny Yegwan. You're now listening to Korea 24 on KBS World Radio. It's time now for Korea Book Club, our weekly segment where we dive into the world of Korean literature, usually through works available in English translation. This week we have a special edition of the club as part of our Multicultural Week. And for that, we have with us literary translator and Nabilera, Beth Unhi-hong. Beth, hello. It's uh, great to have you with us again. It's good to be back. Hi, Chang-ho. Yes, and thank you for being here with us this week. We normally have you with us uh, for the last Wednesday of every month, but we asked you back because we had a particular request for you to look at a book that matches our theme this week, right? That's right. Um, for this special multicultural edition of Book Club, I'm introducing a young adult novel called Wandugi by Kim Yoryong, first published in 2008 by Changbi. Yes, this book, it is considered a modern classic in Korea now, being the first winner of the prestigious Changbi Youth Literature Award the year it was published. Uh, Beth, can you tell us a bit more about what it's about? Yes, this is a coming-of-age novel from the perspective of a 17-year-old boy named Do Wanduk who lives in a rundown rooftop apartment in Seoul. Wanduk's father has dwarfism and a hunched back, and his non-biological uncle has an intellectual disability. When Wanduk was younger, his father and uncle danced at a cabaret, and later on when it closed down, they sold items on the subway and then at markets outside of Seoul to make ends meet. Meanwhile, Wanduk's mother is from Vietnam. Right, so he is half Vietnamese, and this is where this story fits into our theme this week. However, what's interesting is that it's never actually specified in the novel, right, how Wanduk's father and his mother met, but we can surmise that it was an arranged marriage through uh, perhaps an international marriage broker, right? 
Yeah, so one thing to note is that going by the publication of this book, Wanduk was born in 1991, which is technically a year before Korea and Vietnam formally established diplomatic relations in 92. That being said, international marriages are not going to go away anytime soon. This is for a variety of reasons, including the migration of women from rural to urban areas and low marriage and birth rates overall here in Korea. Yes, in fact, earlier this year, there were uh, news reports that the number of international marriages hit a three-year high in 2022 as uh, post-COVID travel restrictions for uh, international arrivals were eased in Korea. That's right. And it's notable that among the foreign wives, almost a third or 27% were from Vietnam, followed by 19% from China and another 16% from Thailand. So although this novel was published 15 years ago, its situations and characters are very much relevant to what's happening in Korean society today. Indeed. Okay, so what are some of the uh, realities about growing up as a multicultural youth in Korean society that uh, we learn through this novel? So in this book, Wanduk initially reacts very negatively to his homeroom teacher Dongju telling him that his mother is Vietnamese. He's reluctant to meet her as he is aware that it would be yet another strike against him to be associated with those people or 저쪽 사람 as his mother is referred to by strangers in the book. And stats show that not much has changed since then. I mean, according to a 2021 survey that measured Korea's level of multicultural acceptance, adults recorded 52.27 out of 100. In addition, Wanduk's socioeconomic situation is also an accurate reflection of current reality, as the same study found that multicultural families have lower average incomes than other Koreans, though it should be noted that this is improving every year. All right, so his story uh, showcases the challenges that uh, multicultural families can go through. But then in the story, a key part of the storyline is actually Wanduk finding a, si- a sense of uh, self-worth through kickboxing Mm -hmm. uh, as an alternative to studying and going to university. Uh, Can you tell us about that? How accurate do you think this is in reflecting the reality for multicultural youth? Yeah, I mean, there are some really realistic scenes and dialogue depicting the cold reality of the Korean education system, which emphasizes rote memorization and going to cram schools to get into university, which supposedly determines one's entire life path here. Mm. And Wanduk doesn't fit into this mold, despite his father's desperate desire for him to be a good student and to become a novelist. Instead, Wanduk finds his calling at the local kickboxing gym. And we can consider Wanduk to be a positive story, despite the current reality. In the 2021 survey I mentioned earlier, youth from multicultural families were found to have lower levels of self-esteem, on average, compared to local youth. And though multicultural youth have high attendance rates in elementary, middle, and high school, only 40.5% were found to go on to college, which is 31 percentage points less than that of high school graduates with two Korean parents who enter college. Wow, that's a huge disparity. Uh, Once again, looking at those figures, only 40% of children from multicultural families go on to college, while more than 70% of Korean children or uh, children of uh, two Korean parents, uh, we should say, enter college. I think that really uh, tells us a lot as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, In addition to multicultural youth, there are other characters in this novel that uh, highlight the Uh, lived experiences of foreign migrants and the disabled as well, right? Can you introduce us to uh, some of them briefly? Yes. So in this book, we also have the Indonesian migrant worker Hassan, who volunteers at the church and introduces Wanduk to kickboxing. 
He eventually gets deported due to a police crackdown, reflecting the precarious situation for foreign migrant workers here that we still see happening today through news headlines and in pop culture. And finally, we have Wanduk's physically disabled father, Changbok, and his intellectually disabled uncle, Minggu, who struggled to survive at the margins of Korean society. Right, so this became a celebrated work, and it became a bestseller as well, and a further, I guess, cementing its place in Korean culture. It was also adapted into a popular film of the same name in Korean, although there was a different English title given, uh, which was Punch. Uh, it was released in 2011, starring the now, unfortunately, disgraced uh, Yuan, right? Yeah, that's right. You can actually find this movie on Netflix. And overall, I think the acting in the film was very strong, especially with Yuan playing the leading role as Wanduk. Um, the ending for both the film and the book could strike some people as overly optimistic, but I do think things are changing for the better. And perhaps in another 15 years, some of the themes will no longer be considered as relevant as they are now. Mm, I think that's an interesting uh, final thought. Perhaps we would have hoped that 15 years on from the novel, some of the stories of uh, marginalization and discrimination might have been less relevant, as you said. But unfortunately, uh, they are still issues. At the same time, it is perhaps just a road we are on. This is something we've talked about throughout the week. Uh, and through the power of stories like Wandagi, perhaps it can help illuminate better pos possibilities uh, beyond the present reality. On that note, we'll leave it there. Beth, thank you again for joining us for this uh, special edition of uh, the club and introducing us to Wandagi. And uh, we look forward to seeing you again next time. Take care. Bye. Thank you. And that wraps up our show. And it also wraps up our multicultural week here on Career 24. We hope you enjoyed the special interviews and segments that we brought for you over the past week. We'll be back with a regular edition of the show tomorrow, so we hope you can join us again then. In the meantime, we hope you have a great day. I've been your host, Kwon Jang-ho, and thank you, as always, for listening. Goodbye. KBS World Radio Don't even think about checking that message or texting back. Did you know it only takes three seconds after a driver's attention has been diverted from the road for a crash to occur? Texting while driving is six times more likely to cause an accident than driving under the influence of alcohol. Sending or reading a text message causes drivers, on average, to take their eyes off the road for five seconds. When driving at 80 kilometers per hour, that means that drivers travel approximately the length of a football field with their eyes closed. At KBS World Radio, we value our listeners' safety and well-being. If you're listening to our programs while driving via your mobile device, please hit play before you set off on your journey. If you receive a message or call while driving, either use a hands-free Bluetooth device to respond or wait until you've arrived at your destination. You're not just putting your life at risk. Distracted driving accounts for approximately 25% of all motor vehicle crash fatalities. Arrive alive. Thank you.
내가 사랑하는 사람 정호승 The people I love by 정호승 나는 그늘이 없는 사람을 사랑하지 않는다 나는 그늘을 사랑하지 않는 사람을 사랑하지 않는다 나는 한 그루 나무의 그늘이 된 사람을 사랑한다 I do not love people who have no shadows I do not love people who do not love shadows I love people who have become the shade beneath a tree 햇빛도 그늘이 있어야 맑고 눈이 부시다 나무 그늘에 앉아 나뭇잎 사이로 반짝이는 햇살을 바라보면 세상은 그 얼마나 아름다운가 Sunlight too needs shade to shine bright and dazzle the eyes Sitting in the shade of a tree and watching the sunlight sparkling between the leaves How beautiful the world is then 눈물이 없는 사람을 사랑하지 않는다 나는 눈물을 사랑하지 않는 사람을 사랑하지 않는다 나는 한 방울 눈물이 된 사람을 사랑한다 I do not love people who have no tears I do not love people who do not love tears I love people who have become one teardrop 기쁨도 눈물이 없으면 기쁨이 아니다 사랑도 눈물 없는 사랑이 어디 있는가 나무 그늘에 앉아 다른 사람의 눈물을 닦아주는 사람의 모습은 그 얼마나 고요한 아름다움인가 Joy too is no joy without tears And is there ever love without tears? The sight of someone sitting in the shade of a tree Wiping away another's tears What serene beauty that is 